There's a Peanuts cartoon strip where Charlie Brown is conversing with Lucy. She says to him, you know what I don't understand? I don't understand love. Charlie Brown agrees. Who does, he says. Well, Lucy is really worked up over the subject. She vents her frustration. She says, explain love to me, Charlie Brown. Well, Charlie Brown replies, I can't explain love. I can recommend a book or a poem or a painting, but I can't explain love. She pleads with him, try, Charlie Brown, try. Well, Charlie Brown, he gives this feeble attempt. He says, well, let's say I see a beautiful, cute young lady walk by. Lucy interrupts him. Why does she have to be cute and beautiful? Huh? Why can't a young man fall in love with a girl who has freckles and a big nose? Explain that, Charlie Brown. Lucy is obviously agitated, as most of the time she is. Charlie Brown, she sort, he sort of shrugs, and he says, Okay, let's just say I see this girl walk up with this great big nose. Again, Lucy jumps in and interrupts. I didn't say great big nose. Finally, Charlie Brown, he walks away muttering, you, Not only can you not explain love, you can't even talk about it. Well, in tonight's chapters, the Apostle John not only talks about love, but he explains it. He defines God's love for us and the importance of our love for one another. Chapter 3 begins, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. This term, behold, it's a call to stop what you're doing and to give serious thought. In other words, check this out. Behold, what manner of love. Check out this brand, this type of love that the Father has bestowed on us. Whenever I check out the love of God, I think of Ephesians 3, verse 18, where the Apostle Paul prays that God would enable us to comprehend what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ. He mentions the width of God's love. His love reaches everywhere and to everyone. It crosses borders and breaks down walls. God's love grows in sidewalk cracks. It pops up in the most unexpected places. He speaks of the length of God's love. Hey, when we're a distant memory to the people closest to us, we'll still be the object of God's love. We'll still be the apple of his eye. Paul speaks of the depths of God's love. You know, God's love is weighted so that it always sinks to the bottom. Did you know that? God's love is always weighted so that no matter how low you go, you are never out of reach of God's love, the depth of God's love. And then he exalts in the height of God's love. A love that sacrifices his only son for the likes of us is a love that's over our head. God's love rises to peaks that none of us can climb. It tops all our earthly concepts of love. Behold, what manner of love. The width of this love and the length of this love and the depth of this love and even the height of this love. He says, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Rebellious, dirty little street urchins like you and me have been adopted by the King of Kings. We've been made his kids. Behold the mind-blowing love that God has for us. And then he continues. 
Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Now, I love this paraphrase of the two verses that we've read, verses 1 and 2 here. It says, what marvelous love the Father has extended to us. Just look at it. We're called children of God. That's who we really are. But that's also why the world doesn't recognize us or take us seriously because it has no idea who he is or what he's up to. Jesus was Almighty God. He knew the mysteries of creation. He understood each person he came in contact with better than they understood themselves. And yet Jesus himself was misunderstood by everyone. He was brushed aside by the masses as just a mere teacher. He was accused by the religious establishment of being a charlatan. He was executed by the Jewish hierarchy as a blasphemer. Obviously, Jesus was never recognized or appreciated for who he was. And this will be the Christian's problem. In Christ, we're co-heirs with Jesus. We're kids of the King. We are beneficiaries of divine mercy and grace, members of God's forever family. And yet, we're either brushed aside or ignored. We're either scoffed at or persecuted. We, too, are certainly not recognized and appreciated for who we really are. Legendary actor Cary Grant, he tells the story of bumping into a man on the street one day. This fellow looked at him and sort of scratched his head and he said, Hey, you're, uh, you're, uh, I, I know who you are. Now don't tell me, you're rock, huh? uh, no, no, you're, you're, you're. Well, finally, Cary Grant thought he'd just help the guy. He said, Cary Grant. The guy snapped back, No, you're not. I'll tell you who you are. Well, just like the man who didn't recognize Cary Grant, the world doesn't recognize us. Your heart is the site of a miracle. They should take tape and wrap around your heart and designate it off from the rest of the areas. Your heart's the site of a miracle. The Holy Spirit purified you and now resides in you. In your heart of hearts, it's now a sacred place. It should be a tourist attraction. And yet, instead of treating you as something special, the folks at work, they ignore you. Or worse, they view you with disdain. Hey, don't be shocked if they treat you the same way that they treated Jesus. And yet, one day, our plight will change. He says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Hey, one day, God is going to let the cat out of the bag over your real identity. One day, what we are, the glorious children of God, is going to be revealed for everyone to see. Everyone will be in awe of you and me. When Jesus appears in the clouds, trust me, you'll be in cloud nine. In 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that the rapture of the church will be given new bodies that radiate God's eternal glory. The redemption that God has planned for us in Christ won't be complete until the last vestiges of sin and death and decay have been purged from these fleshly bodies. This rotting flesh will be transformed in a moment, in an instant. God will give us new bodies that will reflect God's beauty and God's glory. You see, our current bodies are too opaque. What you see is not always what you get. The life of Christ abides in us. But that's not always apparent to those who look at us. 
Our eternal bodies will be more translucent. The glory on the inside will be allowed to be seen by the folks on the outside. Today we wonder what these future bodies will look like. Imagine being clothed in a resurrection body. A body no longer vulnerable to pain or to sickness or to soreness. My back went out a couple of days ago and man, I've been hurting for the last few days. What a, what a body I'll receive. My body will have a perfect back that'll never go out. Some of you have that same problem too. You know, we can mull over what the characteristics of these new bodies are going to be like. But John squelches our curiosity with five words. He tells us, we shall be like him. Isn't that enough to fascinate you for all eternity? That we'll be like Jesus? That we'll have the same type of body with the same capabilities Jesus had after his resurrection? We'll be like him. Recall, Jesus vanished before the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And then he appeared in the upper room there in Jerusalem. Evidently, his body wasn't limited by time and space. I'm not sure all that Christ-like includes. But one thing is sure When we receive those bodies, we'll be the envy of the angels. We'll be beautiful beyond description. We'll be like Jesus. You know, today the skeptics, they label the doctrine of the rapture as a form of escapism. Rather than live an overcoming life in the here and now, all those rapture advocates, all they do is sit on their hands and twiddle their thumbs and they're just biding time, waiting complacently. Oh, you don't understand. For John says that the hope of the rapture has a powerful motivating factor for godly living. Notice he says in verse 3, For everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Hey, if you're expecting Jesus to return, you'll want to be ready. A young lady who lands a prom date with the most stellar guy in the school Trust me, she won't be idle 30 minutes before pickup time. She'll be primping. She'll be getting ready. She wants to look her best when he shows. And likewise, the bride of Christ wants to be at our best when Jesus returns. This is why a constant expectation of Jesus' soon return, the rapture of the church, keeps us on our toes Wherever I go, whatever I do, I need to first ask myself, if Jesus returned tonight, is this where I would want to be? And is this what I would want to be doing when I meet him? For sure, we'll want to be pure. Notice verse 4. For whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him, there is no sin. Remember when John the Baptist saw Jesus on the banks of the Jordan? He pointed to him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came to put an end to our sin. You see, in God's economy, sin is transferable. The sin of the guilty can be passed to the innocent. Jesus could bear our sin because in him there is no sin. John says, Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now, please don't misunderstand this verse, what it means. Whoever abides in him does not sin. We know that John is not teaching sinless perfection. 
For he said to us earlier in chapter 1, verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. John has already established that we'll sin. We'll blows it, and he knows it. In the Greek here, the verb sins is in the present tense. It could be translated, whoever continues in sin. The Greek word is harmatia. It means to miss the mark. It was a term used when the archer shot at the target and he missed the bullseye. You see, man's problem is not that he occasionally misses God's glory. It's not that his eye mists up or that he gets distracted or that his hand slips on the bow. No, man's problem is that his aim is bad. Our problem is internal. Our nature has been stained with sin. We're warped. We can no longer shoot straight. And this is why Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus births within us a new nature. He transforms our spirit by his Holy Spirit. Jesus turns us into a straight shooter. Of course, this new nature doesn't mean that I will no longer slip up in sin. It'll happen. But here's what John is saying. The problem is no longer internal to my spirit. It's external. It's the flesh and the world and the devil that now causes me to miss the target. That means that the key to living the Christian life is learning to live out the supernatural instincts that Jesus has implanted in my heart. What has he put in my heart? He's put a love for God and a love for one another in my heart. And this is how I overcome the outward enemies that want to stunt that love. As believers, there'll be times when we'll miss the mark. But it's no longer because we can't aim straight. As we learn to overcome the flesh and the world and the devil, we'll start hitting the target more consistently. It's been said, a believer isn't sinless But he does sin less and less. Before I came to Christ, I occasionally slipped up and did good. But the flow of my life was towards sin and selfishness. Now that I'm in Christ, I might occasionally slip up in sin, but my prevailing desire will be to love God and to love others. Notice verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he who is righteous He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. In other words, like father, like son. A child of God acts godly. A kid who runs to evil is of the devil. You know, the older I get, the more I act like my dad. I just admit it. From the jokes I tell to the way I walk, I am my father's son. Once me and my three older kids, they were just tots at the time, we were walking around the corner of my house, me, then Zach, then Nick, then Natalie. And as we turned the corner of the house, Kathy was up on the porch, she could see us, and as we turned the corner of the house, I just kind of spit right in the yard. I like to spit in the yard, I'm a guy, I like spitting in the yard. Well, then Zach, he turned and he went, spit in the yard and then Nick turned and he went spit in the yard and guess what yep you guessed it my little darling she turned and spit in the yard and I can't believe my wife almost came unglued she saw it 
She couldn't believe that I was teaching my little girl to spit. She didn't care about the boys, but she was worried about her little girl. But it's inevitable. Kids will mimic their dads. As the old saying goes, the nut doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? Kids act like their father. And this is true spiritually. If God is your dad, you'll make a habit out of doing what's right. But if you habitually sin and harbor hatred in your heart, then man, you may just be a child of the devil. Verse 8 says, For this purpose the Son of God was manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came into this world to break Satan's chokehold on humanity, to set us free from his clutches. You remember in John 10, verse 10, Jesus exposes Satan's goal for you and me. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. Satan works to rip us off, but Jesus provides us 24-hour security. Satan is out to kill, but Jesus is a bodyguard. Jesus will take a bullet for you, even a nail. Satan wants to destroy you. Jesus desires to give you a better life. In fact, he's come that you might have life and life more abundantly. Jesus opposes the works of the devil. The words that roll from Satan's lips most often are foiled again. Verse 9 tells us, For whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him And he cannot sin, or literally sin continually, because he has been born of God. Listen to how J.B. Phillips translates verses 8 and 9. He says, The man whose life is habitually sinful is spiritually a son of the devil. For the devil has been a sinner from the beginning. Now the Son of God came to earth with the express purpose of undoing the devil's work. The man who is really God's son does not practice sin, for God's nature is in him for good, and such a heredity is incapable of sin. In essence, righteousness and unrighteousness is in the genes. You know, today, every dysfunction, every sinful behavior is blamed on genetics. Have you noticed this? From serial killers to homosexuals to alcoholics, People duck responsibility because they say they were born that way. And in a sense, they're right. They're exactly right. For we're all born with a certain proclivity towards sin. We're born with the sin nature, the sin of Adam. We can blame all our problems on the sin nature that we inherited from Adam. Indeed, we can. But we can't duck the responsibility of them. Why? Because we can be born again. We don't have to remain in the sin of Adam. We can receive a new nature. We can be born again of the Spirit of God. Jesus is the answer. Jesus takes out that defiant nature and he replaces it with a compliant nature. One that loves God. One that obeys God and loves others. Thus, if you're truly born again, you'll love him and you'll obey him. Verse 10 tells us, In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest or made obvious. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. A few years ago, I read of two Russian women who swapped two-year-old toddlers and didn't know it. The hospital sent them home with the wrong babies. 
One mother was reminiscing one day several years later, and she was looking at the memorabilia of her child's birth. She noticed another mother's name on her boy's maternity ward ID tag. DNA confirmed the mistake. And yet here John confirms that many churches have made the same mistake. We've sent folks home thinking they're a child of God when in reality they're a child of the devil. You see, the way to know for sure is a spiritual DNA test. If your life stubbornly opposes any thought of submission to God, if you have a general disdain in your heart for other people, then you've got a problem, man. A true believer will want to please God and love others. You won't always do it perfectly, but that desire will be there. You'll have that new nature in your heart. The DNA doesn't lie. He says, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Of all the roads that lead to jealousy, or I'm sorry, of all the roads that lead to hatred, jealousy is the shortest. It was jealousy that turned Cain into a murderer. You know, it's been said, a man green with envy is ripe with trouble. And that was certainly the case of Cain. You know, when God accepted his older brother Abel's sacrifice, i sorry, his, his brother Abel's sacrifice, Cain was the older brother. But when God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's, Cain became outraged. Cain was a proud man. Rather than humble himself and correct his attitude, he vented his anger and he took out his frustrations on Abel. And we should realize that often men of God like Abel are easy targets for people who are mad at God like Cain. It's been said a man's arms are too short to box with God, but a man will sure take out his anger and his failures and his envy on God's representatives. This is why John tells us not to be surprised when we're persecuted. He says in verse 13, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Don't be shocked. If you get persecuted, if you're hated by people in this world. For her first seven years in school, our daughter Natalie, she attended a Christian, a Christian school. But in the eighth grade, we enrolled her in a public school. And I'll never forget, the night before her first day at school, I set her down and I told her, I said, Natalie, I will make you two promises. First, you will be persecuted for being a Christian. I hope not often. I trust not by a teacher, but at some point it'll happen. I said, but I also promise you that when it does happen, Jesus will be with you to give you strength. And I think Natalie would tell you that I was right on both counts. Hey, don't be surprised. Be prepared when the world hates you. Verse 14 for we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Now, here's evidence of spiritual life. Here's how to check yourself for a spiritual pulse. Here's how you know that you've passed from death to life if you have love for the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught us, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. 
But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now, obviously, murder carries more serious consequences than does anger or hatred. And yet understand, the deed comes from the same seed. It's the same evil. Murder and hatred, just different degrees. Murder is uninhibited anger. It's anger that's thrown off all restraint. Thus, though a person may never pull the trigger, he who hates has that same potential for murder in their heart. Verse 16, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us. We also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Here's what I call cross-think. If Jesus went to the cross for me, then surely I can go a second mile. I can make small sacrifices for you. John 3.16 tells us of God's great love for us. Notice here, 1 John 3.16 tells us that since he does, we ought to love one another. But whoever has this world's goods, and he sees his brother in need, and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? If you've got the goods and you see a brother in need, don't shut your heart. Now, it may be that God will speak to you and for some reason tell you not to help that person for some reason. He might shut your heart, but don't you shut your heart. The Christian's first impulse should be to help, not walk away. God's love is aggressive, not passive. It doesn't bury its head or sit on its hands. Real love is love in action. It sees needs. It feels needs. And then it meets needs. Notice verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. I heard the story of a bride who went to buy some material that she was going to use to sew her wedding dress. She told the clerk that she was looking for some heavy, coarse material. She wanted fabric that would rustle when she walked. That's how she put it. Salesperson asked her, why? The young lady explained, my fiance is blind. He won't be able to see me, so I want him to hear me when I reach the altar. That's a wonderful story. This is a love that sees a need and feels a need. And then meets that need. As Christians, let's never stop seeing needs. Let's never stop caring about those needs. Let's never stop reaching to meet those needs. And then verse 19. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Notice, love breeds confidence in my relationship with God. I know I'm a true child of God because I love other people. Love is the evidence. Notice he doesn't say we know we're true children of God because we pray three hours a day or because we never miss church or because we always give an offering or because we teach a Sunday school class or because we speak in tongues and work miracles. That's not what he says. I know that I know God because he fills my heart with love and I in turn love my brother. Jesus said to his disciples in John 13, verse 35, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's true. Love is the believer's birthmark. 
For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Hey, if you know there's hatred in your heart, then realize God knows it too. You can't fool God. No one can pull the wool over God's eyes. He knows all things. God sees all things. He says, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. I like the old saying, your conscience is like a baby. It has to go to sleep before you can. If you know you're carrying a grudge, if your conscience is bothering you, if there's a twinge of bitterness or hatred in your heart, then it's time to repent and confess it before God and ask Him to fill your heart with His love. He says, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. A heart that's free from hatred and that desires to please God is a heart that belongs to a person in harmony with God's will. And thus the prayers that they pray will be the kind of prayers that God is willing to answer. Verse 23, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave us commandment. You know, man's tendency is to complicate. Did you know that? I've heard it said that we have 35 million laws trying to enforce 10 commandments. That sort of sums up the American judicial system right there. But you know, God keeps his commandments pretty simple. Here he says there's two. Believe in Jesus and love one another. The Jewish law included 613 commandments. It covered every aspect of life. Jesus didn't violate those commandments. He fulfilled all 613 commandments. And in fulfilling them, he was able to condense them down to two. He said, here are the two commandments. You do these two things and you'll keep all the law. Believe on me and love one another. I mean, how much simpler can a person make it? Religion is complex and complicated, but following Jesus is very, very simple. All that's necessary to walk with God is to trust Jesus with all your heart and then love your brother. Make trust and love your emphasis, and you'll enjoy the peace of God. Well, chapter 3 ends with a reminder, a reminder of the Holy Spirit. He says, now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us but now chapter 4 begins with the acknowledgement of other spirits not the holy spirit but other spirits he says beloved do not believe every spirit but test the spirits whether they are of god because many false prophets have gone out into the world in addition to love, another source of assurance for the believer is the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. See, no one becomes a child of God without receiving the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is the one who births God's nature in us. And yet here's the problem with the testimony of the Holy Spirit. You see, love is demonstrated in objective ways, in deed and in truth. And yet the leading of the Holy Spirit is a subjective thing. I like to think of the human spirit as a satellite dish. It picks up all kinds of signals from all kinds of sources. 
Certainly God speaks to me. But the devil can also plant thoughts in my mind. The world sends me messages. My emotions influence me. My own conscience and subconscience are active. Even the pizza that I'm going to eat later tonight can cause disturbing impressions. This is why John cautions us to test the spirits, whether they are of God. And in these next few verses, John tells us how to run a spiritual ID check on your feelings. Verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. Simple enough to peel back the appealing facade of any impression. Discover what it says about Jesus. A spirit, any inward influence that isn't correct about and exalting of the person of Jesus is evil. If it does not affirm and honor Jesus, it's evil. If it does not bow and glorify Jesus, then you know it's not of God. So, if a single young lady were to walk in here tonight, and if she were to come in and tell us, well, you know, I I felt God wanted me to sleep with my boyfriend last night. We're in love, and it, it just seemed to be the right thing to do. Okay, she says that. Now it's our job to test those spirits. And so we would ask ourselves, is this what Jesus taught? Is this what Jesus would do? Is this what is taught in the scriptures that Jesus affirmed and believed? Would Jesus agree with her sentiments? WWJD, what would Jesus do? In particular, John is dealing with a deception that had presented itself to his readers. In in his day, the truth was under attack from a form of heresy known as Gnosticism. The Gnostics, they denied that God had come to earth in in human form, in the flesh. Here's why. They believed that matter was intrinsically evil, thus God would never have taken a physical body. To the Gnostics, Jesus was one of many reflections or emanations of God, but he was not actually God incarnate or God in the flesh, and thus they denied Jesus' humanity. Of course, they couldn't deny that Jesus had actually walked on the earth, for Jesus of Nazareth was a fact of history. There were too many eyewitnesses who had seen him, and thus the Gnostics tried to skirt the obvious. They made wild claims that Jesus had appeared, just not in flesh and bone, that he had been a phantom or a spirit or an apparition. They concocted fanciful tales of Jesus walking on the beach and leaving behind no footprints. Other Gnostics believed that the spirit of Messiah rested on the man Jesus until just before he was crucified. And at the point of his crucifixion, the divine spirit departed from the human Jesus. You see, they couldn't bear the thought of God actually being crucified. In various ways, the Gnostics, they rejected the biblical truth that Jesus was fully human and fully God. And this is why verse 2 here in John says very specifically, every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. This was a direct rebuke to this Gnostic heresy, as was the very first book, very first uh, verse in 1 John. You remember 
Chapter 1, verse 1, John prefaced his remarks. That which was from the beginning, which we have seen with our eyes. He wasn't an apparition. He wasn't a phantom. We saw him. We have looked upon him. And notice this. And our hands have handled him. We touched him concerning the word of life. Jesus was no ghost. John touched him. In John's day, the heretics denied Jesus' humanity. You know, it's interesting that today the, her- the heretics have largely flip-flopped. Today the heresies deny his deity, not necessarily his humanity. The Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, other cults, they'll affirm Jesus' humanity, but they deny his godhood. He was an angel, or he was a god, but he was less than the god. And yet John's teaching applies to both denials. Whether you deny his godhood or whether you deny his humanity, if you're not right on about Jesus, then you're all wrong about God. That's what John is telling us. Notice verse 3. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Of course, Antichrist is the one world leader spoken of in Revelation chapter 13. He denies the true Christ and he leads a revolt against God. This man will surface in the last days. But here the spirit of Antichrist, an anti-God, an anti-Christ mood, a spirit, an attitude. This has been around since John's day. You know, even today there's a strong spirit of Antichrist in the world Why is it you can't watch a movie that comes out of Hollywood without hearing the precious name of Jesus taken in vain? Why is that? Society advocates free speech for all except the person who wants to talk about Jesus. The Antichrist is yet to appear, but oh, his spirit is already at work. Notice verse 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Realize we face a trifecta of evil. The world wants to beat you up. The devil wants to rip you off. Even your own flesh wants to drag you down. And yet notice this. God has made you overcomers. Certainly the Christian life is not a sheltered life. A believer will take some hits. But he overcomes. She fights through. He rises above. We climb over all that's thrown at us. The child of God doesn't just undergo hardships. He or she overcomes hardships. Christians are like Timex watches. We take a licking, but we keep on ticking. And here's how we overcome. Verse 4. Hope you memorize this verse. Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I encourage you to memorize that verse. He who is in me is greater than he who's in the world. Always remember, one plus God equals a majority every time. At times, it may appear as if the world is against us, that the world has stacked the deck against us. Your opponent's hand is loaded with aces and kings. You just remember, you hold the trump card. And his name is Jesus. Greater is he that is in you. In all that is in the world. When you need strength, you need to remember that the power of God that hung the heavens, that hurled the myriad of stars into their orbits lives in you. 
Need wisdom? Hey, keep in mind that the mind of God that understands all mysteries abides in you. You need calm and composure? Don't forget that the one who slept in the back of the boat knowing his mastery over the storm is now riding in your boat. When you need love, you remember that the love that sacrificed itself upon the tree pulsates now in your heart. Hey, let me suggest that we all put this verse to memory. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And then verse 5. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now understand this, our ears hear only what they're tuned to hear. If God trains your ear, you'll listen to God. If your ear has been tuned to Satan, then you'll have no interest in listening to the people of God. Now remember, John was one of the last, or he was actually the last of the 12 apostles. And it was to the original apostles that Jesus gave the authority to bind and to loose. They bound the church in certain obligations and they loosed the church from other obligations. In essence, Jesus gave to his first 12 apostles and their associates and only to them the authority to determine for the church its faith and its practice. This is why Paul will write to the Ephesians in chapter 2 verse 20 and he'll say that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles. Now here in verse 6, when John says, we are of God, the we he's referring to is himself and the apostles. And when he says, he who knows God hears us, he who is not of God does not hear us. John isn't on some ego trip. He's just affirming the special position that the 12 apostles occupy in God's plan for his church. Thus, Those that hear God will affirm what was taught of the apostles. Those that reject what was taught of the apostles are not of God. Those who who are of God will pay attention to those God authorizes to speak on his behalf, which were the apostles. This is why we put so much stock in the New Testament. Why? Because it was written by or under the supervision of the apostles. This is why we look to the New Testament for all of our faith, and for all of our practice. And this is how the church has always judged truth from error. This is why John says, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is how we differentiate. Was it spoken by an apostle or under his authority? If so, then it's of God and inspired by God. If not, then it's of the world and it should be rejected. And that's where we'll end tonight at verse 6. We'll finish up the rest of chapter 4 and 5 next week.